from PRX. Today on Studio 360. Constantly you're told Hollywood wisdom. Oh, you know, Latin people don't want to see Latin people. He's a Hollywood star, but his heart's on the stage. I go, really? Who do they want to see? The Norwegians? I mean, I love them, but... I personally want to see Latin people. John Leguizamo's singular, long-running Broadway career. Plus... Let me tell you a thing about gangbanging. The rapper Nipsey Hussle tried to make peace among gangs in L.A. Gangbanging is like a volcano. Don't ever get comfortable in a volcano, you know what I'm saying? It, gets, it might could go, it could blow. And then he was gunned down. How Nipsey Hussle's death has prompted a ceasefire. That and more is ahead on Studio 360, right after this. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is right Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. You me 500 of these savages and I'm going to put them in my royal zoo. This is John Leguizamo. Who would have thought that colonization could be so much fun? Oh, robbing, raping, pillaging, robbing, raping, raping, pillaging, robbing, robbing. And this is John Leguizamo. Lord, you have finally come to your city, Mexico. Here, sit on thy throne, O Quetzalcoatl. And this is John Leguizamo. Yeah, yeah, people are und naturally jealous even of their brother or their best friend because people have to feel superior. And now, this is John Leguizamo right here in our studio explaining how, before he performs the character of Andrew Jackson on stage, he gets a laugh by powdering his hair to look more like him. <laughs> I take the chalk, the erasers that I've been erasing for the whole hour and a half, and I, and I powder my hair to look like Andrew Jackson on your $20 bill. Now listen here, Chief Crybaby. You and your papooses <laughs> can remain on this land so long as you live by our laws. So from now on, there going to be just a few new laws just for all of y'all. So he's taking out the laws, the um, um, crazy amount of laws to disenfranchise the Cherokee people at that time. Andrew Jackson is one of a whole bunch of historic figures and family members whom John Leguizamo turns into characters and becomes in his Tony Award-winning and now nationally touring one-man show called Latin History for Morons. Like all of Leguizamo's theater pieces, Latin history is partly autobiographical, but it's also blazing new territory as educational entertainment. He's costumed like a teacher, a blazer, a tie, even an old-school vest. He writes on a chalkboard and brings out the books he read researching the show and figuring out how to play President Jackson. The more research I started doing, I say I, got, I have to act it out. I can't just mention his name. Let me take the audience there. And then I started to figure out the accent. Do I do 
uh, Mitch McConnell, you know, his, his other type of why he, he talks, or or do I go more? Your, your mouth got very turtley. Right <laughs> yeah, yeah, yurtle the turtle. And then and then I had a, I heard a friend of mine who's who's from the south, and his, his accent was like, oh, that's why Andrew Jackson. So uh, that, that's where I, I got sort of this one was more. You know, he's got a very southern, like very drolly thing that he has, and that's what I started to do. Yeah. Well, and he and it's suitable because historically he was a kind of a wild man as a as a person. So yeah, he was a wild man. He 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 was he. I mean, he was a dastardly human being to yeah. to us people of color and and especially Native American people because you know he figured out that the way to demoralize the the tribes was to wait for the men to go on a hunt and then you just kill their babies and their their wives and then when they come back it's really easy to capture the men. So yeah, I, he's he's a dastardly human being in my mind. I yeah. mean, it's a shame that Harry Tubman is not uh, taking over the twenty. But thank God we only use the twenty to buy weed anyway. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> so that would be that's a reason not to put Harry Tubman, I guess, on the twenty. But um, maybe we wouldn't use it. For, <laughs> so so weed's so, getting more expensive anyhow. <laughs> uh, uh, why would it be getting more expensive? Because now you have to get the, the special, oh, oh. you know, the happy one, the one that makes you think. Oh, it's, and, the, oh, it's, it's like buying wine. Now. Yeah, yeah, oh. yes, it is. <laughs> um, the taking the chalk in your hands and just putting it up in your hair and making your hair, like, instantly Jacksonian. I, was that just, oh, I, I get it. I'll do that. No, that came out of nowhere. At first I wasn't doing it. And then all of a sudden one day, I don't know, I dropped the chalk and it hit the floor and its cloud of, uh, of, of powder came out. I was like, oh. That could go on my hair. And I was I started creating this, you know, smacking myself at the chalk and, and then try to walk away from it so I don't get white lung. And, and, but I had this, this crazy white hair and it was incredible. And then it, it lasts through the end of the play as I'm de-evolving as a father trying to, you know, uh, educate my son and, and battling with him. Speaking of your son, who's one of your characters, um, uh, talk about him and the origin of Latin history for morons. Well, the genesis of the piece was my son was being bullied and, and racially profiled in New York City, believe it or not. And he was in eighth grade. Because this was a fancy private school that he was bullied? Is that why? I don't know why. <laughs> I mean, I guess that must have been the reason. I mean, uh, it, it was just bizarre to me. Um, I mean, I, I was bullied, but I, I understood why, you know, it was just, it, it was a different time and 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 neighborhoods were changing, uh, being ungentrified, uh-huh. <laughs> reverse gentrified. So uh, I, people were hostile towards me. But I just didn't understand how that, that could happen to my kid. But anyway, I, I wanted to, instead of beating, I wanted him to beat up the kid. I'm not going to lie. That was my initial impulse. But then I, I, I wanted to be better than that. That doesn't necessarily lead to writing a play no, no, about, but I wanted about to, about I wanted Latin him American to defend history. himself. I yeah. wanted to weaponize his information. Instead of fighting them, I said, arm yourself. Have facts. You know, so I started uh, doing all this research, and what ended up happening was that I was the one that was being unmoronized, destupefied, un un undumbificated, and uh, and that that was what was incredible was that I I I started to realize how much Latin people had contributed to the world and to the making of America. This is going to blow your mind because you know what? It blew my mind when I found out that we Latin people had helped out in the American Revolution. 10,000 unknown Latino patriots fought out of a total of 80,000 American troops. That's one out of eight. And some of us are generals. And, and women, Cuban women in Virginia, 
sold their jewelry, their hoop earrings and their door knockers <laughs> to feed the patriots. You've had these previous shows, Freak and all the others, that have been commercially successful, critically successful. This one, this one, among other things, is your first Tony Award. Yeah. But it, it seems, does it seem to you as though it's touched even more people in some way? We're in a dark time. It's a dark times. We Latin people are being attacked in, on so many levels by this administration that uh, it's like an ungment, you know, some some kind of salve that, that can help Latin people feel stronger, empowered, politicized, galvanized. So you spent a few years working on this. Uh, talk to me <laughs> how that went. Was it research and writing and back and forth? And then, Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, really? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to, I, I, I had too much history at first, and people were just turned off. And you're like, oh. and then, and then there, there was, then I wasn't as happy because they wasn't had enough history. So it was, it was a balance between a fight between the audience and myself. How much could they tolerate, and how much could I give up? <laughs> so you were doing versions along the way, workshopping for audiences. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I it, my process is always in front of a live yeah. audience. Your shows are are all jam packed to various degrees with with. A million characters. Were you, as a kid, good at like just impersonating the kid there, or your mom, or whomever? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was, I was always doing voices and and accents and characters. I mean, that's how I got people to laugh. That's how I got girls to like me, and and kept my father from beating me and gangs from you know pummeling me. You know, yeah. It was, it was, it was a self defense mechanism, and 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 it brought me amounts of power. So this is your sixth uh, one man show. You started in 1991 with Mambo Mouth which was this collection of vignettes, each a different New York Latin character, all of them played by you, including, uh, let's listen, the trans prostitute Manny the Fanny. But until I, they don't live on dreams because there are no Prince Charmings coming to save you, just a lot of frogs. So you know what you do? You know what you do? You take your frog by his little green dick and you make him do what you want to do. Because you are a Latina of the 90s, gay with a program, mija. <laughs> because if it wasn't for a Spanish woman, Columbus would have never discovered America. Then came Spicarama, then Freak, uh, Sexaholics, and, and Ghetto Clown. Uh, talk about how this, this theatrical monologue form became... So central to your <laughs> to work. my being. Yeah. Because it's the most intimate I can be with an audience. I mean, it's the most intimate, the most personal. It becomes like a, a church in a way. I, I just find it, I connect with audiences in such a beautiful, honest, raw way. And then we have this this talk afterwards. Usually I, I, I sit with them and, and they share with me. They share with me so much, man. Um, And you started doing it. Just, at, I mean, in the 80s, I was here in the 80s, yeah. and I remember, oh, Spalding Gray, Whoopi, Eric Bogosian. Like, were you were you seeing all that as a young guy going, Obviously, like, well, I want to do this? <laughs> they Im absolutely influenced me in creating my autobiographical piece. I took a little bit from everybody. Yeah. You know, uh, Eric Bogosian brought the sex and the anger, and Spalding Gray brought the personal, and... And Lily Tomlin brought the play, and then I took it I all. I left out Lily Tomlin, yes. Oh, right. you got to, you got to. And Whoopi Goldberg brought yeah. the ghetto and the poetry, and 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 just beauty, such beauty in, in in her work. And I just created my own sort of uh, autobiographical piece. So much of your work is about truth telling in these entertaining ways. 
in, in, in your memoir, you say, you go on and on about how you can't handle the truth. Like anybody tells you some like close to the bone true thing about yourself, you just collapse. Is that, re- is that true? Uh, I mean, I have a hard time with people telling me the truth. I mean, I, I don't. It doesn't. It doesn't hit me. I don't, I'm not really open it to at first, but I warm up to it. You know, I, that's yeah. why I go to therapy. He helps yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He helps me deal with this, so I could start accepting myself and accepting what people say about me. It must be amusing for a therapist to have a a performer of of your kind as a patient, because like. I don't know. I'm not that you're performing for him or her, but like there'd be a little of that going. No, there's not. Yeah, I know. I do voices for him. <laughs> I act out certain people in certain events. You know, I definitely wow. do that for him, and and I, and I get him to laugh. He should pay you. <laughs> I wish. I mean, it's not a cheap. It's not. He's not cheap. Uh, looking back at your early career, you were very successful very quickly. You 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 know you were on Miami Vice regularly at 22. Yeah. yeah. You you uh, were Shakespeare in the Park 23. Uh, Brian De Palma movie at 24. I mean that's that's a that's like holy cow who is this guy? So then a couple of years later when you say I want to do this my first yeah theater piece was that easy to get done? It wasn't easy to get done. No, it wasn't. Um... It was hard to find a theater that would take me or, or, or that believed in me. And when Hammond believed in me enough to, to get me uh, the hallway of his theater, I wasn't even in the theater because they just didn't know. They just didn't know how many Latin people and how hungry they were to, to see themselves. And, and, he, and that he, white he, people actually wanted to see Latin people. I mean, when Hammond ran, ran a, a, a American s- Place Theater, significant off Broadway theater. Oh, yeah, yeah, very yeah. important, where yeah. Eric Bogosian started. Right. where Denzel studied, Alec Baldwin, and and then the, the theater was an important theater. You know, he did Sam Shepard plays, and and then he did my play. In in your first two shows, uh, Mambo Mouth and, and Spicarama, you, you the 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 characters like broke off into their own little playlets with costume right, changes right. Yeah, and yeah, stuff. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> uh, and in the more recent shows, the current one, the uh, Latin History and In Freak, you just boom, 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 do them without. Stopping really yeah, seamlessly. Yeah. What? Why? Why? Why that? Why did that change happen? And how you do all these characters? Well, the plays were written very different back then. You know, I, I would be in one character through the whole piece, and 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 they were monologues, separate monologues. Uh, Spikrama was more like a Rashomon, people telling talking about this wedding. Same the thing. Oldest. Yeah, yeah, and from their different point of views. Uh, and then with the freak, I was like, I, I, I just didn't want to do the costume. I just do the, wanted to do the quick scenes. And then by Ghetto Clown, I was able to do, my technique had improved so well that I could have a whole scene with all these non-existent characters talking to each other. So we've got an example of that from Ghetto Clown. So in this scene, you were counting the, the making of Carlito's Way, which you were in, and, and you play three characters. You play the director, Brian De Palma, and your... 28-year-old self and Al Pacino. Cause, cause, cause. What the fuck was that, John? What the fuck did you just do, you dumb fuck? But Mr. Pacino, Mr. Pacino, I'm just trying to find my thing, you know, my thing like I had on stage, you know? Your thing, John. Um, um, your thing is not a thing. Your thing, um is uh, less than a thing. Okay, Dr. Seuss. Well, can we just please ask the director and see what he thinks? Brian, Brian, is he gonna take care of me, man? Come on, I'm starting to freak out. You, you gotta help me out, man. 
Take it easy, guys. I gotta, I gotta, God's doing a terrific job. It's so dangerous, it scares me. John, John, I got it, I got it. Ow, oh, ow, oh, I know you're tired. And the last thing you want to do is another take, but the kid hasn't got it right yet. One last take, I promise you. Thank you, Al, thank you. John, tell him a new asshole. Okay, guys. Okay, here we go. And rolling and speed action, John. So you really think you just got better at that at that seamless jumping from character to yes. character and, and, and that landing with audience. Right, and, and keeping the audience still engaged. And they, and, and they, would t- they would tell me they saw all the characters talking to each other, that I disappeared to them, which was, uh, it was a huge compliment for me. So you do television, you still do tons of film work, but you, you just absolutely continue going back to this, this um, solo show on Broadway thing. Is that important for you because it's what you love doing best or because you have control over it in a way you just never would uh, on a movie or a, a TV production? No, no, because it's, it's, it's my controlling my narrative. It's my control of Latin storytelling, right? And our and 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 Latin themes that I feel are still incredibly absent. <laughs> Even though we're almost seventy million people in this country, we're less than three percent of the faces on camera, and forget about our stories, our original stories. They just absent, completely absent. And it's not for lack of talent or lack of trying. Every time you go out there and you and you try to sell something that's a Latin story, it's impossible to convince studio heads to go forward into green light. It's impossible. Really? You try, you, you, you're at it all I've the time. I've been at it since I started in this business. And constantly you're told Hollywood wisdom, oh, you know, Latin people don't want to see Latin people. I go, really? Who do they want to see? The Norwegians? I mean, I love them, but I want to see, I, I personally want to see Latin people. They tell me, you know, Latin people don't want to see uh, feel-good stories. There's a thousand reasons. That's a curious That's rejection. the bizarrest thing I've ever heard. But it's impossible to sell Latin-themed stories to, to studios. It's really difficult. Uh, John Leguizamo or, or John Leguizamo. You say Leguizamo. Um, thanks so much for coming. Uh, oh, thank you for having me. Just, a just a pleasure. Yeah, you're awesome, man. Thanks. John Leguizamo has just started his national tour of Latin history for morons, 11 cities from now through the fall. And you can find out exactly where and when at studio360.org. Broadway theater goers expect raciness and surprise and modernity out of John Leguizamo. Not like when they go see a nice old-fashioned musical like Oklahoma. I'm on the stage with no shoes and bare minimum clothing, and it's literally me just expressing myself throughout my body and my facial expressions. Oklahoma gets a choreography update for Broadway, positively radical. This is raw modern dance. That's next on Studio 360. Oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, what a beautiful day. Rodgers and Hammerstein's Oklahoma from 1943, one of the prototypical musicals, is deeply familiar and reassuring. The new Tony Award-winning production now playing on Broadway is not. 
Although the music is all the same, the score is played by a country bluegrass band instead of a full orchestra. And the actor's singing is more alt-country than operatic. Oh, what a beautiful morning. And as for the performances in this new version, nix the all-American wholesomeness, cue the sex and violence. The story is the same as the original. On the frontier, a classic love triangle between the ranch girl, Lori, the handsome cowboy, Curly, and the loner farmhand, Judd. So Lori is making up her mind between two men, the seemingly dark and sinister Judd Fry, and Curly, who is more happy-go-lucky. That's Gia Corliss, who writes about dance for the New York Times, among other publications. And so she's trying to decide who will take her to the picnic. Halfway through Oklahoma, Lori has a dream about the two men, presented on stage as the Dream Ballet. In the original, 75 years ago, this dance was a real innovation because it depicts the relationship between the three main characters, Lori, Curly, and Judd, and foreshadows what happens next in the play. Up until this point in uh, musical theater history, the dances were usually divertisements. And what Agnes DeMille did is she changed all of that and created sort of a longer form, dramatic dance that related with the plot of the larger musical. John Higginbotham is a big fan of Oklahoma and the choreographer of this revival. In the original choreography by Agnes DeMille, the dance is this surreal interlude, but the staging is literal with dream ballet versions of each character dancing, acting out Laurie's fears and desires. In this new version on Broadway, there's just one dancer, Gabrielle Hamilton, who knew the original choreography very well. As a dancer, that's part of our curriculum to watch Oklahoma and also to dissect the dream ballet because it's so iconic. Okay, we're watching Agnes DeMille's 1955 film version of the Dream Ballet. And this is a large cast ballet with dance representations of the entire community. We see Lori and Curly. They're running toward one another, and there's this giant leap. There's this beautiful, beautiful movement where Lori places her forehead on the chest of Curly, which to me says everything we really need to know about their relationship, their trust, and their affection for each other. And then Agnes DeMille does this brilliant, beautiful transition into something much darker. Curly's not there anymore. Now it's Judd, who is a much more sinister figure And Lori tries to escape. She runs through a door, but the door continues into a saloon. With these saloon girls, they're all women who are completely still and with dead eyes. And there's this beautiful movement in which the showgirls just ruffle their skirts in this very small, deadpan way. (laughs) 
the culmination of the dream ballet is the quite athletic battle between the two men, and it appears Judd has murdered Curly with his bare hands, and he then carries Laurie off toward a tornado in the distance. And then we're back out of the dream ballet. Laurie is sitting in her chair having her dream. And Judd comes in and says, Wake up, Laurie. It's time to go to the party. It's time to get started for the party. I think Agnes DeMille's Dream Ballet is a great work of art. And I suppose there's a question of why wouldn't we simply extract her Dream Ballet and put it into the center of our current production of Oklahoma, directed by Daniel Fish. And this current version is so different visually, so different in style than traditional versions of the show, that the very literal elements I don't think would match what is set up in this current production of Oklahoma. The Dream Ballet has a certain rawness to it and explosiveness that reflects the rest of the musical and kind of the essence of the show. Watch your ears because the music is very loud. It starts with a roaring electric guitar. A lot of fog, a lot of mist. And when it clears, what is revealed is this one person that we have not seen anywhere else in the show. And it is Gabrielle Hamilton. And I come out and I'm bald-headed and I'm short. And she is wearing a very simple, brilliant costume, this sequined long t-shirt with some text written on it and the text is dream baby dream gabrielle is alone on stage and she's taking her time and she's standing there looking at all of us and we're looking at her she's not afraid to stare for a second too long at someone in the audience and have a moment of warmth or a discomfort i take my time to look at everyone I take my time to introduce myself. So Gabrielle represents a bubbling up of feelings from the whole community of all of the characters. I think of myself as everyone, everyone's pain and their repressed feelings, their repressed personalities. Like the emotional lives of the characters in one body. And then Gabby immediately starts galloping around the entire space. It's go time. I literally am powered up by your energetic emotions in the audience, and I gallop. And that gallop is a tribute to Agnes DeMille. It's a move that happens in the original Dream Ballet. And then she freezes like a statue, and we're left in silence. And then there's another pause. And... I'm exploring myself, I'm exploring my skin in ways where it sounds very sensual. Um, And it can be sensual, but it also can be very innocent of just like, what is my skin? Why am I in this skin? Why am I this color? She's going through something and it is a sexual awakening. She's getting to know herself and her skin and she's touching herself, her neck, her cheek. You can just tell she's on the verge of discovering something about not just herself, but life, maybe, and thinking about the future. All of those things that happen when you start to grow up. 
And so we get into Can't Say No, and that's my favorite part because I literally flirt with everyone in the audience and just like intimacy, like true intimacy. She's absorbing so much energy. It's like an energetic exchange from audience member to performer. There's this sort of beautiful subtlety and stillness and repetition in Agnes Mill's version with this sort of showgirl ruffling your skirt in an almost invisible way that I wanted to acknowledge. And Gabby stands and faces us and twists her hips in this way that's almost imperceivable, but it makes her beautiful costume sort of shimmer in this great way. I like the little nods to the Agnes DeMille, like when she's swiveling her hips. It's not exactly Agnes DeMille, but there's some kind of reference to the ruffled skirts, the way the the showgirls moved. And the cast members are coming out, and there's a switch in me. There's a switch of aggression, of the community aggression, and my aggression. Just being everything that everyone doesn't want to say and doesn't want to do. And Gabby has a moment with each of the actors and then goes into a wild, wild dance. I'm ready to attack. I feel like a lion. I'm ready to eat. I'm ready to just, like, explode. And Lori appears in the doorway and I stand up to Lori and just look at her breathing hard you know sweating from top to bottom but I'm still standing my ground and I'm still looking at her as like what are you going to do about this now why are you in this state why are you allowing yourself to be taken advantage by men and Judd says Wake up, Lori. It's time to go to the party. The dream ballet gives us permission to proceed in bold and surprising ways. And it allows us some room for the final portion of the show in which time really slows down, in which there is a lot of violence and confusion And I feel like the dream sort of rips open a doorway for us to go forward into that. The dream ballet takes it to a stranger, deeper, richer place. This wasn't advancing the story in the way that Agnes Mill did, but it was sort of like peeking into someone's mind for a few minutes so that when you go back into the world of the characters in the story, it's unsettling. And I think that's pretty remarkable for something like that to happen on Broadway. In Broadway, you don't see a lot of modern dance. You know, it's geared towards the entertainment of the audience members. And this is raw. So I'm on the stage with no shoes and I have bare minimum clothing. And it's literally me just expressing myself throughout my body and my facial expressions. The Dream Ballet really evoked a lot of emotional aspects between people, like audience members and their own issues. And people have came up to me and literally was just like, when you did this, it reminded me of this in my life at that time period. And I just want to thank you because I felt like I was the only one that had that emotional state that can endure this. But thank you, you know, and that's what we want. And that's what I want. Oklahoma, where the wind comes sweeping down the plain, 
and the waving wheat can sure smell sweet when the wind comes right behind the rain. That story was produced by Studio 360's Zoe Saunders. Oklahoma is on Broadway now. Coming up... The music world is mourning Grammy-nominated rapper Nipsey Hussle, who was killed in a shooting in Los Angeles. The rapper Nipsey Hussle was something of a peacemaker among L.A. gang members. And then last spring, he was murdered. But he might still be stemming the violence. There were people from all different gangs, some of which were rivals. There were Crips and Bloods, and they all came together. The life, death, and legacy of Nipsey Hussle. That's next on Studio 360. Studio 360. You may remember hearing Mary Harris on Studio 360 a couple of years ago. She was hosting a health podcast, and we were doing an episode of this show about whether laughing is actually good for you. So I roped Mary into going with me to a laughter yoga class. It was a supposedly fun thing, I think it's fair to say, Mary and I will never do again. These days, Mary hosts an excellent daily news podcast called What Next, a sibling of ours at Slate, for which she produced this segment about how the death of a Los Angeles rapper last spring is still resonating. Here's Mary. Cindy Chang covers crime and the LAPD for the Los Angeles Times. She says, if you drive the Harbor Freeway from North LA to South, you'll pass Watts to the East, Inglewood to the West, and every few blocks, you'll cross these invisible lines, lines that separate rival gangs. Once you get to know people in this culture, you start to, when you're driving through, go, oh, you know, I'm driving through the Rolling Forties territory. The Rolling Forties are a local affiliate of the Crips. And it's not like everyone who's a blood wears red all the time and everyone who's a Crip wears blue all the time. Gangs often adopt sports teams as their symbols. So you'll spot somebody who has a certain hat on and be like, hmm, I wonder... Are you a member of such and such? The loyalties might switch every few blocks, but those loyalties also last. Something people don't realize about gangs is we tend to think that when somebody is not involved in criminal activity that they've left the gang. But often that's not the case. So they feel this real strong allegiance to their neighborhood and might still consider themselves a member of that gang, even though they might have a regular job um, or be a famous rapper. Nipsey Hussle was one of those famous rappers, an L.A. icon. The music world is mourning Grammy-nominated rapper Nipsey Hussle, who was killed in a shooting in Los Angeles. He was gunned down earlier this spring. When Nipsey Hussle was killed, did you cover it? I was one of many people who covered it. He was from the Rolling 60s Crips, um, and he was always very open about his membership. Nipsey was killed while he was standing in front of the clothing store he owned at the corner of Slauson and Crenshaw, right in Rolling 60s territory. And this uh, spontaneous memorial sprung up that drew hundreds of people. I mean, that intersection was just swamped. The parking lot filled up with flowers, balloons, poster board. 
And of course, Nipsey's music was playing full blast. Yeah, just chilling. I'm just, I can't believe that this happened. Like, I was here on People started broadcasting live from the store on their cell phones, posing with Nipsey's car, which was still parked out front. This Jag right here, I guess it was um, Nipsey's car that he drove up here. And very quickly after that, or during that, there were people from all different gangs, some of which were rivals. There were Crips and Bloods, and they all came together. All the gangs, but most of the gangs from L.A. walking over the Nip spot right now. And Cindy says what started with this march three months ago has continued in church basements and public parks, peace negotiations, just as delicate as any diplomatic mission, negotiations that some gang leaders hope can stop all the killing. Cindy was there as these talks happened. And the question now is, will they work? Mogul and they know that. Logo on my flow mat. Corsair Chamberlain throwback match my Rolex. Everywhere I go flex, valet park on some low shit. Whole lot of smoke in that Rory, that thing post. When he was alive, Nipsey Hussle repped L.A. hard. He had this love for his hometown and his crew. You could just hear it. In the video for one of his most popular songs, Last Time That I Checked, he rides around L.A. in a white Lamborghini, wind in his hair. He is in full Crips blue. And he's alongside another rapper, YG, who's in his deep blood's red down to his patent leather shoes. The message seems to be, we can perform together. We don't have to fight. Something that stood out to me about Nipsey Hussle was watching him give interviews where he put gang life in this really thoughtful context. Anybody, y'all, y'all heard of a, a, this dude named Maslow? Like, he put gang culture into the framework of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Okay, so at the base of human needs is our our physiological needs, food, clothing, shelter. And there's other needs that come above that. But if you can't address these, all that other shit don't count. And it's come to research. Some of these guys that I talked to for this story, I mean, you know, they've reflected a lot on, on their lives um, because when— You've dealt with violence and death and prison at a young age. I think it causes some people to do that. So can you just sum up really quickly, you know, kind of what made Nipsey Hussle so important to the L.A. community? I think it was that he wasn't just a rapper. He, you know, had this clothing store in the heart of his community. He hadn't left his community And he was trying to bring money into the community um, and to really not just talk about helping the youth, but to really um, create these avenues where they could become entrepreneurs and be successful so they wouldn't have to fall back on gang life. Yeah, it's your life. You can play with it. You make your bed, you gonna lay in it. Do your thing, just be safe with it. Details about what happened to Nipsey are just being released. The man accused of shooting him was reportedly angry that Nipsey had called him a snitch. But the two men were actually affiliated with the same gang, which shows just how hard it is to stop gang violence in L.A. The disputes are complicated, personal. But after Nipsey's death, 
a group of older gang members decided they had to try. So there have been these almost sort of like um, summits where uh, leaders from all different gangs get together. And, you know, a lot of them talked about we can't just keep on having meetings. We've got to, you know, this is an emergency. This is a crisis. Um, We've got to take action now. What is our action going to be? When you walk into one of these meetings, what's it like? In some ways, it just looked like a church breakfast. I mean, they were eating scrambled eggs and grits and talking to each other. But the one that I attended, the one in Compton, it was at a church. The pastor is actually a sheriff's deputy who is very much supporting them and said, you can use this space whenever you like. I'll feed you. But he stepped out of the room for the actual meeting because, you know, they— they would be more comfortable without law enforcement there. Can can you articulate, I mean, violence has been going down around the country, but does it feel like that in these neighborhoods where Nipsey Hussle grew up, where any of these gangs operate? Yes and no. I mean, if you compare um, in 1992 um, in the city of L.A., there were more than a thousand homicides. Last year, it was less than 300. So that's a lot fewer people dying. But In these parts of the city, um, particularly among people who are involved in gangs, the toll is still very, very high. I mean, these a lot of these people that I've talked to, they've been shot multiple times. They've lost dozens of friends. You mentioned how the gang leaders get together. They talk about shared goals. What do we misunderstand about what the goals of these groups are? So one thing which uh, the gang members quickly corrected me on, um, I used the word truce. And they said, what we're doing here is not a truce. It's a ceasefire. So in their terminology, um, a truce means that you're actually friends, whereas a ceasefire just means don't go into their neighborhood and shoot people. And when you've had a war with another neighborhood where people's lives have been lost, a lot of people aren't ready to be friends. I think that's really the main goal that they have is to stop the killing. But to actually do that, I mean, it's a very complicated diplomatic landscape that in a lot of ways is analogous to – to world diplomacy. You know, you've got to strike an agreement with the other side. But before you can even do that, you have to gain at least a critical mass of support on your own side. Otherwise, you you can't even come to the table. And you've got to have that project that credibility that you have control of your own side. Yeah, that's it's just it's intense. It's like, how do you fix this issue and how do you sort of control your people and and hopefully calm down the other side? It just sounds, I mean, as you said, it sounds delicate. Yeah, it's a lot of work. It's hard work. But now some of these um, gangs that were very recently considered themselves enemies, the leaders who are trying to create the peace will say, oh, now we talk every day. It wasn't like All of a sudden, this came out of nowhere. I mean, there were already people who wanted peace. um, But 
they needed a catalyst. Gang wars in Los Angeles claim hundreds of lives every year. Many of the victims are innocent bystanders. But as Ron Allen reports, the Rodney King verdict may change things. In 1992, in the wake of the Rodney King verdict, rival gangs in the Watts neighborhood came together to talk peace. There's talk of a truce in a war some thought might never end. L.A.'s warring gangs, Bloods and Crips some 100,000 strong, may turn their anger about the Rodney King verdict into peace. There were a lot of long-lasting um, things that came out of that. For example, um, this committee called the Watts Gang Task Force, and they meet almost every Monday. You know, they have police officers there who give updates on crime in the past week. Um, and so they have this now official place to hash things out. So you're describing how these talks in 1992 kind of built this structure that the gangs could work inside of and could sort of move things forward. I know that they don't want to call this a truce, but the gangs that are negotiating now, do you see them building something similar? I do. I don't know how um, official it will get, but... You know, even if, say, you know, the rolling 40s and the rolling 60s who have a tentative ceasefire, if they stop shooting at each other for a year, two years, five years, I mean. That's something. Yeah, lives are going to be saved. Um, And I think that the relationships that are being built are going to last. I was struck by something Nipsey Hussle said about gang culture and how it provides something essential to young men, which is acceptance. The world said we was wrong, but the set embraced you for who you was. You know what I mean? And that's the that's the allure of gangbanging. And, and the gang is that you might have been broke. Your mama might have been on drugs. You, you, you might have not had, you know, the material success But the gang don't judge you on that. The gang judge you on your heart. And it's tricky to think about how you beat that if you're trying to stop gang violence. And I wonder if any of the conversations you're overhearing now are talking a little bit about that. Like back in Watts, they talked about, you know, entrepreneurship and how that was important. And of course, Nipsey Hussle himself was a big booster of, you know, black business owners and making sure that money was coming into the community. Yeah, I think you're right that in 92, um, jobs were very much part of the conversation because what is the alternative? You can't tell people to just stop leading this lifestyle or making money this way if there is no alternative. So, I mean, I think right now the real priority is just let's stop killing You know, there's something else that Nipsey Hussle said that stood out to me. He was talking about truces and what happens when gangs try to stop the violence. And he said, the truces don't last long. I I wonder if you think this negotiation is different or not. I would say it is a large-scale movement, but that... The actual piece is going to happen with these individual agreements between individual gangs. So whether those last long is hard to say. This movement is not a citywide peace movement. It's not like everyone's going to sign a document and there's going to be no more shootings, right? 
But are some of these um, ceasefire agreements going to last on an individual level? Um, they very well may. Nah, you know what this is? Let me tell you the one, a thing about gangbanging. Gangbanging is like a volcano. Don't ever get comfortable in a volcano, you know what I'm saying? It, gets, it, it could go, it could blow. So it could be, it's never like it calmed down and it's just, it's, it's, it's placid, it's chill right now. It's gonna go up again though, you know what I'm saying? So it, it can seem like it calmed down and it'll be a sick ass summer like this summer. The deadly summer in LA. I put my right hand to God, shine on these bras, stay on my job. That's the late Nipsey Hussle. Mary Harris hosts What Next? And that segment was produced by Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, and Ethan Brooks with additional work by Studio 360's Tommy Bazarian. And that's it for this week's episode. By the way, if you want to support what we do here, you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Like listener Mindcentric did, who wrote, The 2001 A Space Odyssey podcast was simply wonderful. Loved it. Thank you, Mindcentric. And Sinbad the Sailor's review of Studio 360 says, It's like listening to a down to earth, curious, professorial uncle. Thanks, Sinbad. It's my honorary doctorate that lets me pass for professorial, like the scarecrow in Wizard of Oz. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our production team is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Andrew Adam Newman. Sandra Lopez-Monsalve. Evan Chung. Lauren Hansen. Sam Kim. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. Morgan Flannery. And I am Kurt Anderson. He rides around L.A. in a white Lamborghini, wind in his hair. Thank you for listening. PRI Public Radio International. Next time in Studio 360, we sail in search of the great white whale. He rises! It's been seen as the story of a fascist, the story of a totalitarian communist, and most recently, the story of a terrorist. I'm Kurt Anderson. Join me as we chase Moby Dick next time in Studio 360 from PRI.